I appreciate Joe's testimony, and you're going to hear more testimonies over the coming weeks as we uh, seek to emphasize life groups here at our church for the uh, beginning here of 2023. Um, we believe they're important, immensely important, for the life and health and growth of the, of the Christian walk and journey. And they also form a key component to our vision of being a Christ-centered community of holy love. That's how we think that is, is lived out and worked out best here in our congregation. So as we dive into this emphasis, if you would, turn with, with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be on page 971, and uh, we'll be getting into that here in just a minute. Um, the writer of, of this letter, who we always call the pastor, we don't know his name, so we're going to call him the pastor. What he's doing here is he's trying to drive home some of the implications of who, it is, of who Christ is and what Christ has come to do. Everything that he's been teaching for all these chapters throughout this letter, he's going to take all that teaching and he's going to drive it home and say, this is what it means for your life. And that's a pattern that he established all the way back in chapter four. If we were taking our time to read through this letter, we would see in chapter four that he presents this, this teaching about the, the priesthood of Jesus, the all-sufficiency of Jesus. And then he takes that teaching and he makes application in a since let us pattern. Okay, so in verse 14, he says, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. So you see the connection. Since this thing is true about Jesus, let us do this thing in light of it as a result. Again, verse 15, since, which in the case here, it's implied, since this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet did not sin. Verse 16, let us, here's the implication, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. That's why I like calling him the pastor. It's not just that he's really good at teaching things about Jesus, taking these you know, deep you know, theological ideas, these biblical truths, and making them understandable to his readers. He doesn't just do that. He takes the truths about Christ and then like a shepherd, presents them to the sheep in a way that the sheep know what to do with it. They know, what does this mean for my life? How do I live this out? What are the implications? What is the application of this teaching for my life? And that's what he's gonna do again here in chapter 10. So if you would, chapter 10, we're on page 971 in our guest Bibles, if you happen to grab one back there. I'm gonna be reading this section that the NLT titles, A Call to Persevere, beginning in verse 19 and concluding in verse 25. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Again, we see in the text here the, the sense, let us format like we saw back in chapter four. You have privileges in Christ and then the implications for 
our lives. The privileges, of course, are summarized there in verses 19 through 21, the first few verses I read. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can do something. We, we can enter into the presence of God boldly by his death. He has made that a possibility. He has empowered us to step into the presence of God. We don't have to slink into the presence of God. We don't have to sort of crawl on our hands and knees and sort of, you know, with, with great fear and trepidation, you know, sort of with our faces turned away, you know, approach God. No, we can approach him boldly. We can step directly into his presence at any time, continuously, with, with regularity. We can come to him with confidence, knowing that he accepts us and he offers us his grace and his mercy and his help, all because of what Christ has done. And so, verse 21, since we have this great high priest who rules over the house of God, let us therefore do the following all-important things in verses 22 through 25, which are first, verse 22, let us go. Jesus has made a way. Let us therefore go into the presence of God. Let us draw near, some of your translations put, put it there. Imagine being granted access to a treasury full of riches that are reserved for you, and yet you never, ever took the time to access it. That, that's, that's what we have. In Christ, we have the, the, the storehouses of heaven, the treasuries of heaven, life with God at our disposal. He has made it possible. What should we then do? Well, it's, it's obvious we should draw near to him. We should take advantage of this great privilege. Jesus has provided sinners like you and me access to God. And so the pastor encourages those who have faith in Christ to regularly and continuously draw near to him. We're not to be like the wilderness generation, are we? Back in Hebrews chapter 3, we, we could find the, the pastor there talking about that generation that had been drawn into relationship with Yahweh. They had been miraculously delivered. They'd been saved from Egypt and captivity and slavery. They were brought to Sinai and they were incorporated into a, the covenant with God. They were made his people and he was their God. And they had all the access in, in the world that could be afforded to, to people in terms of a relationship with Yahweh. And yet, what did they do? They turned away from him in disobedience. They turned away from him with evil hearts. And so, in, in contrast to that, you and I are encouraged and exhorted to, to not turn away, not to, with evil hearts, be disobedient and, and depart from relationship with God and seek that which is opposed to the will of God. No, we're called to draw near to God with sincere hearts and fullness of faith, people whose hearts and minds and lives are attuned to the things of God, where we seek after the things of God. We seek to, to carry out the will of God in our lives and obey it. Because of Christ's work, both for us and in us, well, we can come to him with confidence, as he says in verse 22, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood and made clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. That's language from the Old Testament that expresses that inner transformation that takes place in the lives of those who have said yes to Jesus and have been filled with the Spirit. It's not just Christ's blood that is surrounding you and, and shielding you and protecting you and covering you. It's the work of his Spirit within you that transforms you from the inside out. It is for you and in you. It is all of that together that allows us to approach God with boldness and all because of Christ. Forgiveness and cleansing and renewal and transformation. We can come to God Praise be to God 
with clean hands and a pure heart. Man, that's the hope of the gospel, is it not? Not just that you can be forgiven for all the stupid stuff you've done, but that the power of sin can be broken in your life, that you can serve God, that you can bring honor to God, that God can delight not just in his son who's done something for you, but in you in whom his son now dwells by his spirit. And, and we must come to him in this way because drawing near to God is not just a privilege. It is a means of perseverance. It's interesting. The very thing that God blesses you with in Christ is the very thing that you need to make it to the end. Because of what he has done, the, the pastor says, you have access to him now. It's, it's a joy, it's a privilege, it's a gift. But you have to continue to access him. It's not just come to Jesus one time. If I come to him this one time, I settle all the, all the problems and everything, the slate is wiped clean and I'm good to go. That's not what he's saying. He says, draw near continuously. You have access to him now, but you have to continue to access him if you have any hope for the future. And that's the concern here. I think the NLT has the, the, the heading right. And you can look in your Bibles again there. What is the heading to this? It is a call to what? To persevere. That's the concern of the pastor. That Not just that they would begin the, the, the life of, of faith, but that they would complete, that they would make it to the end. Hebrews is a call to perseverance. And so, church, draw near to Christ continuously, but then, in addition to that, verse 23, and I'll, and I'll give you perhaps the more literal translation here, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. Draw near, hold fast your, your confession. That confession of Christ's all-sufficiency, that his life and his work, that they're enough for you today and that they will be enough for you tomorrow. That who he is and what he has done is completely and solely adequate for salvation. Trusting in Christ today, friends, not that you trusted in him yesterday or a year ago or once when you were a child. No, it is trusting in Christ today in the present. That is your only hope for final salvation at the end of time. It's not a one and done kind of thing. It's, it is a life of faith in Christ, moment by moment by moment. And our hope for final salvation is not because of the quality of your ability to trust. No, it's because of the quality of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. That's, that's where our hope is, ultimately. If we have faith in him today, then we can have hope in him for tomorrow. So, as we're sort of working through these, these implications of the high priesthood of Christ, draw near in faith, hold fast to that hope, but then thirdly, verse 24, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Now, let me ask you that. Does that, does that one seem like it belongs with the other two? Think about it. It almost seems out of place here, doesn't it? You know, the, the first two things that we're commanded to do, you know, uh, drawing near and holding fast, clinging to the confession, clinging to our hope, being people of faith, that seems very much like it's about, you know, me, right? It's about my personal relationship with God. It's something that I need to be doing. It's, it's those important things that the pastor deems necessary for perseverance. But it's interesting, in the same breath, he adds to this sort of vertic vertical orientation of the believer the horizontal as well. And, and it almost it sort of jars us because 
we don't often associate the third let us command with the first two in the sense of its importance or its necessity or its urgency or how essential it is. We would all agree, yeah, it's essential to to put our faith in Christ. It is essential to cling to the hope we have in him. And these are things that we have to do if if we want to be saved in the end, if we want to make it to the end and persevere. And yet to that, he adds this. And let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And that's because for the pastor and really for the entirety of the New Testament, the Christian life is never meant to be envisioned as one lived in isolation. It's never meant to be just you and Jesus, despite the prevailing notions that we have in Western, modern Western evangelicalism. It's not just about you and Jesus. No, the Christian life is one that is lived out within the community. Thank you, Joe, for that, that testimony. You're exactly right. We're not just a bunch of individuals in, in this sort of collective space. We are a body. We're, we belong to each other. We're part of one another. We're, we're the house of God with Jesus as the one who oversees and the one who is the priest over, over all of us. And that is just as much a key to your perseverance as everything else that he has said preceding it. Find me the church that teaches that. Find me the church that places your connection to the local church as just as equally important for your perseverance as faith in Christ and clinging to the hope that you have in your confession to him. No one thinks that way. Because it's all about me and my, my faith, my hope, my relationship to Jesus. And if I'm not connected to you, well, it's not that big of a deal. I think it's a big deal to the pastor in Hebrews here. Because all throughout Hebrews, the pastor sees the church as that community that warns and motivates and encourages. Back in chapter three, and I apologize for having to get a drink of water. It's the only way I'm making through this. <clears throat> Back in chapter three, Uh, Once again, referencing that wilderness generation, that unfaithful generation of, of Israel. He says in verse 12 through 14, be careful then, brothers and sisters, be careful. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning away, turning you away from the living God. Listen to what he says next. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. So where in, back here in chapter three, the, 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 the people of God are to be warning and motivating one another what not to do. Here in chapter 10, it is the community that is to be encouraging one another what to do. And that is, Engage in those acts of love and good works, which he'll spell out later in chapter 13 as you know, showing brotherly love and extending hospitality and showing concern for the suffering, practicing sexual purity, being generous. All those things that are befitting the people of God, we are to be thinking of ways that we can actively motivate one another to be doing these things. Just like we should be warning each other against not doing certain things. And there's a problem in, in this church, something has crept into the life 
of this congregation. And it is this. Some of them have fallen into the habit of failing to meet together. It's, it's become, well, secondary at best in terms of their priorities. There's always something more important. There's always something more necessary, always something more urgent than meeting together as the people of God. They have absented themselves from the very community of faith that the pastor is saying is indispensable to your perseverance. If you want to make it to the end, here's how you do it. And they have said, well, part of that I agree with, but that last part is not so important to me. Look again at verse 25. The NLT here renders it as, an, as yet another sort of let us statement in the list of let us statements here, but I don't think that's, that's right. I think verse 20, 25 is actually a continuation and an explanation of verse 24. It answers the question. If I came to you and said, church, essential to your hope of persevering to the end is that you motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And you said to me, how? If it's so important, Pastor Sean, how? And I would say, well, the answer is in the next verse. The answer is, let us not neglect to meet. Let us not neglect to meet. And let us encourage. And I find that refreshingly practical and obvious. <laughs> I mean, those who absent themselves from the fellowship can do nothing to warn or to encourage anyone or be warned and encouraged by anyone. So it stands to reason if the community of faith is there to warn and to encourage and to motivate and to be there for you, how can you take advantage of that if you're not there? Well, you can't. <clears throat> I promise you, my voice and this cup are far more uncomfortable for me than it, than it is for you. As uncomfortable as you feel, I promise you I feel worse. But we're getting there. One of the things that I really uh, seek to try to do this week and over these next several weeks as we're talking about the importance of life groups or small groups um, is to make sure that we don't only present what you can get from them. Right, that's usually how things are, are promoted or marketed, right? You, you, you show people the value of something. Here are the things that you can get from joining a life group or a small group or coming to Sunday school or being in an accountability group or something, some sort of smaller group setting than you know, the larger church setting. And, and surely there are things that you get. Absolutely, there's value for you in participating. You can get plenty from being in a life group. In fact, you will receive things that you will need in a life group, no doubt, because none of us has it all together. None of us can do this on our own. All of us are, are susceptible to failure. None of us are impervious to turning away. None of us, present company included, every single one of us is weak and frail and needy and and I would almost say hopeless on our own. Last week before the, the service, I was in here straightening things up and getting ready and <clears throat> Monica was up here and <laughs> she's smiling over there. 
And we were talking about uh, the series, The Chosen. Raise your hand if you've seen any of The Chosen. I'm wondering how many of you. Okay, so good, a good number of you are here. So um, one of the, the things that The Chosen does well is it helps the, the viewer see the disciples of Jesus as what they really were, right? You get to see them as frail, broken, you know, incomplete persons. They're, they're, they have shortcomings and they're always messing things up. And, 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 and the viewer can identify with that. Like I, I, can, I can watch a show and I can see how these guys are acting and I'm like, you know, I'm really no different. And Monica made the statement. She said, <clears throat> before watching that show, quote, I used to think I was Mary Magdalene and Peter, wayward woman and big mouth. That sounds very Monica, doesn't it? Wayward woman and big mouth. But then she said this, but now I realize I'm all of them. And then she said, well, except Judas, for now. <laughs> to which I replied, there's still time. <laughs> which probably wasn't the most pastoral thing I could have said to you. I apologize for that, Monica. There's still time. <clears throat> but I think her observation is, is right. And look, I mean it when I say I'm, I'm no better. I, I'm all of them too. You know, seeing Aaron back there, uh, I keep thinking about uh, the, the week that we were ordained together at our general, co- uh, general conference four, year, four years ago, a little over four years ago. And um, right after the ordination service, we were hugging friends and family and, you know, whatever. And Aaron realized that he had misplaced his ordination certificate. And of course, I did not waste an opportunity to tease him about it. And that's sort of our relationship. We have, you know, ten, almost 10 years of just, you know, competition and, you know, that's sort of our love language, you know, teasing and joking and, you know, uh, being on each other's back like that. And so for, for the, the rest of the day, it was little snide remarks here and there about miss, how do you lose something like that? And even thinking to myself, this sort of, sort of moral superiority, like I would never lose my ordination certificate like that. I never, I didn't quite say it that way, but that's, you know, kind of the attitude and the spirit of my heart. Well, he finally found it that evening. And, and what he learned when he found it was, well, it wasn't his certificate that was lost. It was mine. <clears throat> he found my certificate. And I was like, I opened up to my folder and I had his. <laughs> That's a microcosm of me, right? Uh, just oblivious and prone to mistakes and seeing things wrong. Um, and, and that's really, that's all of us, isn't it? That's all of us. Every one of us, we all need the warnings. We all need the encouragement. We all need the support. We all need the grace and the correction. We need the mercy. We need the, the, all the things that the, the life of the church exists to provide to one another. Every single one of us needs it. And life groups or the intimacy of, of close-knit Christian community, all oh, that, as best as I can tell, that is where you receive those things best. But it is also where you can give those things best. It's not just what you get, but what you can give. You have warning and motivation and encouragement, and support to offer. You have love and friendship and hospitality and prayer 
and gifts that someone else needs. And I think perhaps what we need is a radical reorientation in our own attitude and perspective of what the life of faith, what our salvation actually is. If the Christian life is only ever about you, what you get, your own walk with God, then to you, your decision not to go deeply into the life of the church or even to pull away from it altogether only has implications for yourself. And that's how we think. I'm not hurting anybody if I make this other thing a priority for a week, a month, a year. Yeah, I mean, I miss my friends. I'm sure they miss me, but they're fine. It doesn't hurt their walk with Christ. It doesn't weaken their faith. And I'm telling you, that mentality fails to see the corporate nature of the church and of the life of faith. Because when you absent yourself from the community of faith, when you pull away, when you withdraw, you're not just depriving yourself of what you can get, you are depriving others what you can give. You're not just hurting a single part of the body, yourself, you're hurting the whole body. Because that's what the church is. The body of Christ. made of members that need one another. And I'm pretty confident when I say that a healthy body with all of its limbs intact and operating at, at maximum capacity is far more suited to completing a race than one with severe disability. So yes, absolutely, Christ's priesthood is all sufficient. Thank you for this the central theme of the entire book. Thank you for helping us to see how Christ alone is where our salvation is found. That he's superior to everything else. That everything points to him. Thank you for the all-sufficiency of Christ's priesthood. We can take nothing away from it. And we can add nothing to it. But this book about the, the supremacy of Christ comes with warnings. Comes with warnings concerning the very clear and present danger of not seeing it through to the end, of turning away, even making shipwreck of your faith. Friends, you and I need one another to persevere. We need the church's support and accountability and the truth spoken in love, motivation, encouragement, all of, this, all of those things. You need that, and guess what? The church needs you to give that. You need to get it and give it. <laughs> and so do I. You know, I can't think of a single person. I was literally thinking about this all week as I attempted to overcome this ridiculous chest cold or whatever it is. All week, as I've been thinking about this message, I've been, I've been racking my brain trying to think of one person in my life who, as a result of walking away from church life, what's thriving in their faith. I can't think of one. I can't think of one person who said, you know, all that matters is me and Jesus, and all that stuff is, is nice, but it's not necessary. And as a result of that, 
were closer to God, thriving in their faith, bearing fruits of righteousness and, tr- and, and holiness. I had never seen it happen once. Now, I'm not talking about people who, were, who had to leave a church environment because it was toxic and destructive to their faith. That is something else differently, entirely different. I'm not talking about that. <clears throat> there, there are plenty of you in here who have a testimony like that, that you were trying to be committed to this community of faith. You were trying to not just get, you were trying to give. And, and because of, of the dysfunction, the sin, the pride, the broken leadership, whatever it was that was going on there, it was so toxic and so harmful to you that in order for your faith to not be completely crushed, you had to leave. That is something else. It's not what I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about people who have just made a decision that, you know, church life isn't that much of a priority for me. And over the course of time, slowly drift away. I've never met a person like that who was thriving in their faith. But on the flip side, every single person I know who is thriving actively in their faith, every single one of them, bar none, can testify to a deep, abiding, intimate fellowship with other Christians every single time. Yes, at the church-wide level. Of course at the church-wide level. I'm not undermining what's going on here. Absolutely. You need a local church that you can gather with corporately in worship and hear the word proclaimed. It's absolutely central to the Christian life. But also, I'm talking about at the small, the smaller group level, that intimate level, that place where discipleship happens and you connect heart to heart, face to face. You actually get to know the people in your church, Joe. You're not, they're not just faces in a crowd and neither are you. But you share life you get, you get to know and you get to be known. It's there in the intimate Christian community where we really flourish as Christians. And the early church valued both. Yeah, they, they gathered in the temple and they worshiped in the temple and they gathered in each other's homes. It wasn't one or the other, it was both and. They, they were devoted. Thank you, Landon, for, for reading so, memorizing and reciting that so well. They devoted themselves, yes, to the apostles' teaching and, and to, to prayers and the sacraments, absolutely, but to the fellowship. And it's not as if the first three of those were, were essential marks of the church and the fourth one is just something that was added there. No, those are the four marks of the church. I teach that in every membership class I've taught for almost 10 years. If you want to identify the church in the world, how will it be identified? It'll be identified by the preaching of God's word, by prayer and fellowship with God, by worship and sacrament, and by fellowship. Intimate relationships. We're not just cohabitants of a space. We are, in the text, brothers and sisters, family that belong to one another. The other early church valued it all. And so, connecting has always been an essential component of the life 
of the church of Jesus Christ. And to the pastor writing this letter, and to the pastor doing his very best to preach this message, connecting is a matter of both necessity and urgency. Now, we don't know exactly the why. Why were there some who were developing, cultivating the habit of not meeting together? We, we don't know exactly why. Perhaps it was due to persecution. It's a, the most obvious answer, if asking that question. Maybe it was impatience regarding the, re, the, the return of the Lord. We know that from the New Testament, that there were some who were becoming impatient. Oh, I thought Jesus was coming back. I thought he was going to fix all this stuff. And here we have persecution arise, arising and all the challenges. I, I thought when I came to Christ and he'd saved me and, and made things right, that everything would be hunky-dory and good. And suddenly, things are really hard. In fact, in some ways, they're harder than before. Where is he? So maybe it was persecution. Maybe it was, you know, impatience regarding the return of the Lord. Maybe it was just the misguided belief that regularly connecting with other Christians wasn't all that necessary or important after all. But whatever it was, the first Christian believers were tempted to go it alone, and we know that some of them did. But you know what? You've already thought it before I even say it. Christians today are facing the exact same things, aren't we? It's getting increasingly harder to avoid persecution or the prospect of persecution. Even in this country. It's not too out of place to project an America within our lifetimes where we don't have the freedom to gather in a place like this. I mean, freedom is something that is precious that can be taken away like that. We're not guaranteed anything. It's getting harder and harder to be a Christian in this world. And Christ hasn't returned. It's real easy to become impatient. We want him to come and make everything right. Fix all the wrongs. Do away with the evil ones. Fix all my stuff. Where is he? And I don't have to tell you that we live in a, a, a culture that values the, the needs and the desires and the comforts and the, the enjoyment of the individual above all else. And so naturally, we, we don't see what's happening here this morning or what happened in the Sunday school hour or what's going to happen tonight at some of your homes. Those things are, aren't that important to us because all that matters is what I get. All that matters is me and Jesus. And I wonder if all those issues, which we still face today, I wonder if we don't face those even more in this post-COVID world that we find ourselves in. Friends, this is as clear a warning as I can give you that we have to be very intentional not to give up meeting. We have to be very deliberate in making church, church life, life together as the people of God. Yes, on Sunday mornings in this space, but, but together in smaller, more intimate Groups, we have to make that a priority. We have to make that the priority in our lives so you and I can actively and effectively point one another, 
continuously to the all-sufficiency of Christ in the magnitude of the privileges we have when we draw near to him or the magnitude of the riches we forfeit when we move away from him. I need you to remind me of that. I need you to motivate me to encourage me. It's not just me standing here preaching this morning. It is living life together with you. We're together. We're saying these things to one another. We're pointing each other to Christ and we're serving one another and being hospitable and we're encouraging one another to to be sexually pure. That's not an accident. That is the issue that the church has to face in every generation, but how much more in our own that we get these things right And when we move away from one another, we move away from the truth of God's word, we will get it wrong every time. It is so important that it is the priority of our lives. And we are to do these things, the pastor says, all the more now that the day of his return is drawing near. It's not alarmism. There's plenty of that in the world. That's not what this is. This isn't some sort of manufactured crisis to get you to do something. No, the the word of God is, is telling us objectively the situation as it is. It's a wake up to see reality. In every moment of this life that you live, your eternity hangs in the balance. If that doesn't give you an intense sense of supreme importance to this moment, then I don't know what does. That your eternity hangs in the balance this very moment. And I hear the pastor telling me that the nearer to the end we come, whether it's my own personal end or the end of the world, the nearer to the end we come, the more deliberate each person's commitment to Christ and to one another must be. Pastor's message here is clear. All we need for salvation is Christ. Absolutely. Christ alone. Drawing near to him is both a privilege and an ongoing necessity. It is the means of perseverance. And so we must hold tightly without wavering to our hope in him. But he's also given us one another to make sure that all of that happens. You don't have to do it alone. And you mustn't even try. Lord, I thank you for the gift that this church is to my life and to my family's life. For the years of love and welcome and friendship and support and encouragement from the the night my moving truck pulled into the driveway. People like Craig Dale were there to help me pull a mattress off the back of it. And there was a, a cache of groceries worth hundreds of dollars waiting for my family. And year after year, this church has faithfully loved and supported me. I can't imagine living a second of life as a Christian in this broken world without any of that. 
And my heart breaks for those who think they can. Who think that all that matters is they believe something once upon a time, way back when, in a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Who thinks that just because they, they said a few words, that they're good. Or that if they show up and sing a couple songs and listen to a message every now and then, that they're good. Oh, Lord, my heart breaks for them. And my heart breaks for all of us. Because not only are they withholding from themselves, they're withholding from everyone else. So, Lord, help us to take seriously these things, to make them a priority, to see that the life in the body is just as essential, just as indispensable to our perseverance as Christians in this world as, as faith in you and clinging to the hope. And help us to be a church that actively seeks ways to motivate one another every day to live the kind of life that you've called us to live. Thank you that this is that type of church. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you're moving on the hearts of these people to show them what the, what the application is for them today. That they don't just listen to the message or even feel perhaps a little bit of conviction or motivation, but then just to let it dissipate as we sing a closing song. Lord, show us con concrete ways that we are to respond to you and your word. That we take the next step, that we don't put it off anymore, we quit making excuses, we quit looking at other reasons to do whatever other things than what we know you are clearly saying to our lives. Lord, may we have the faith and the obedience to step out and do what you're calling us to do. And I know these people want to do that because they love you and they are open to you. So Lord, guide them as only you can do, I pray, for your glory and for the building up of your church. In Christ's name, amen.